Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Hey everyone, it's Patrick Beeman. I'm from the Inside the Boards podcast, and this is the Step 2 Secrets podcast. I'm here with a question for you from Elsevier's Clinical Key to kick off this chapter of Step 2 Secrets. A 48-year-old male is brought to the ED by ambulance after a bicycle accident. He is hypotensive and tachycardic. His skin is cool and pale. He has left upper quadrant tenderness, and as his blood pressure continues to decrease, the emergency department physician advises him that he believes he has a ruptured spleen and requires a blood transfusion with emergent surgery. The patient refuses permission for any blood product, despite being told he will likely die without a transfusion. He's asked to sign a statement that he is refusing life-saving treatment against medical advice. This is an example of which of the following principles of biomedical ethics. Is it A, autonomy, B, beneficence, C, informed consent, or D, non-maleficence? And the correct answer here is A, autonomy. A for autonomy. So autonomy is the principle of self-direction or self-rule which is what it means etymologically. This patient has the right to choose his or her own course of health care, and usually that's consistent with you know, society's norms and the course of action that we as medical providers recommend. But sometimes, it's not. As long as the patient's choices do not harm others, and the patient is capable of freely making his or her own choices, and those choices do not harm others, Autonomy is usually considered the most important or the first principle in guiding medical therapy. And just because I love ethics so much, if you've listened to the ITB podcast, you've probably heard me say I was a philosophy major and did graduate work in philosophy uh, and interned for Edmund Pellegrino, the father of bioethics. So I'm just going to mention real quick these other answer choices. Choice B was beneficence. So beneficence is the idea that we are supposed to do good for the patient, to promote the well-being of those we see and take care of. A good example would be a physician recommending antibiotics in the setting of an infection. Choice C was informed consent. Informed consent is the acceptance of a treatment after the risks, benefits, and alternatives have been explained to the patient in terms that they can understand. Choice D, non-maleficence, is the principle also known as first do no harm, or in Latin, 
primum non nocere. This is often balanced with beneficence or consistent with it, but a good example here of non-maleficence would be avoiding an unnecessary treatment or procedure. In summary, it's simple. Autonomy is the principle that a patient has the right to make his or her own medical decisions. And now, let's get into some more ethics from Step 2 Secrets. This is Ted O'Connell, and this is the Ethics Chapter of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th Edition. Question 1. What are the general principles of ethics? Autonomy, acknowledging and respecting a patient's right to make his or her own choices and decisions based on his or her values and beliefs. Beneficence, acting in the patient's best interests. Non-maleficence, do no harm, the obligation not to intentionally inflict harm. And justice, treating patients equitably. Question 2. True or false? Adult patients of sound mind are allowed to refuse life-saving treatments. True. You should not force blood products, antibiotics, or any other treatments on a patient who does not want them. Question 3. What should you do if a child has a life-threatening condition and the parents refuse a simple curative treatment, such as antibiotics for meningitis? First, try to persuade the parents to change their mind. If this fails, attempt to get a court order to give the treatment. Do not treat until you have talked to the courts unless it is an emergency. Even with Jehovah's Witnesses who do not want their children to receive a blood transfusion, you should seek the court's assistance in getting the transfusion if it is the only treatment option available. However, if the child is in critical condition and cannot wait for the court order, you may begin the transfusion without the parent's consent. Question 4. What is the difference between active and passive euthanasia? Active euthanasia is the intentional hastening of death, whereas passive euthanasia is withdrawing or opting not to give aggressive, heroic, life-prolonging treatments, such as intubation or artificial nutrition, and letting nature take its course. Question 5. With whom can you discuss the patient's condition? Only with people who need to know because they are directly involved in the patient's care and with people authorized by the patient. For example, authorized family members. Do not tell a medical colleague who is uninvolved with the patient's care how the patient is doing, even if the colleague is a friend of yours or of the patient. Question 6. In what situations are you allowed to breach patient confidentiality? Break confidentiality only in the following situations. The patient asks you to do so. Child abuse is suspected. The courts mandate you to do so. You must fulfill the duty to warn or protect if a patient says that he or she is going to kill someone or himself or herself. You have to tell someone, the authorities, or both. The patient has a reportable disease or the patient is a danger to others. For example, if a patient is blind or has seizures, let the proper authorities know so that they can revoke the patient's license to drive. If the patient is an airplane pilot with paranoid schizophrenia, then authorities need to know. Question 7. What are the components of informed consent? Informed consent involves giving the patient information about the following. The diagnosis, his or her condition and what it means. The prognosis, the natural course of the condition without treatment. The proposed treatment, a description of the procedure and what the patient will experience. 
the risks and benefits of the treatment, and alternative treatments. The patient then must be allowed to make his or her own choice. The documents seen on the wards that patients are made to sign are not technically required or sufficient for informed consent. They are used for medical legal purposes. Question 8. What should you do if a patient lacks capacity to make decisions? A physician can determine capacity for decision-making, but courts determine competency. If a patient lacks capacity for decision-making, obtain consent from family, spouse, adult children, parents, and then adult siblings, and or have the courts appoint a guardian, a surrogate decision-maker, or a health care power of attorney. Question 9. True or false? A living will should not be respected if the next of kin asks you not to follow it. False. Such situations are tricky, but technically, and also for purposes of the USMLE, living wills or patient-mandated do-not-resuscitate orders should be respected and followed if properly documented. The classic board question involves a patient who says in a living will that if he or she is unable to breathe independently, a ventilator should not be used. Do not put the patient on a ventilator, even if the husband, wife, son, or daughter tells you to do so. Question 10. What should you do if a patient is in critical condition or in a coma and has made no advanced directive or living will? Begin resuscitation of the patient. Contact the family, next of kin, or healthcare power of attorney and follow their wishes. In cases of disagreement among family members, suspicion of ulterior motives, or uncertainty, involve the hospital's ethics committee. As a last resort, go to the courts for help. Question 11. What about depression in the context of -of end-of-life decisions? Depression should always be evaluated as a reason for lack of capacity. Patients who are actively suicidal may not have capacity to consent to or refuse life-prolonging treatment. Question 12. True or false? In some circumstances, patients can be hospitalized against their will. True. Psychiatric patients may be hospitalized against their will if they are deemed to be a danger to themselves or others or gravely disabled, meaning unable to care for themselves by meeting their basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter. Patients can be held only for a limited time, usually one to three days, before they must have a hearing before a court official to determine whether they must remain in custody. These decisions are based on the principle of beneficence, the principle of doing good for the patient and avoiding harm. Question 13. True or false? Restraints can be used on patients against their will. True. Chemical and or physical restraints can be used on an agitated, for example, delirious or psychotic, patient if needed, but their use should be brief and reevaluate often, at least once every 24 hours. Be aware that the use of restraints in delirious or demented patients rarely helps prevent falls and may cause injury. Question 14. When do patients under the age of 18 years not require parental consent for a medical decision? In general, people under the age of 18 do not require parental consent if they are emancipated, that is, married, living on their own and financially independent, raising children, or serving in the armed forces. 
They also do not require parental consent if they have a sexually transmitted disease, want contraception, or are pregnant, or if they want treatment or counseling for substance use disorders or have psychiatric illness. Some states have exceptions to these rules, but for step two purposes, minors may make their own decisions in such situations. Question 15. What should you do if a child has a medical emergency and the parents are unavailable for decision-making? Treat the child as you see fit, that is, act in the child's best interest. Question 16. True or false? It is acceptable to hide a diagnosis from a patient if the family asks you to do so. False. Do not hide a diagnosis from a patient, including a child, if the patient wants to know, even if the family asks you to do so. Do not lie to any patient because the family asks you to do so. Conversely, you should not force patients to receive information against their will. If they do not want to know the diagnosis, do not tell them. Question 17. What should you do if a patient requires emergency care, but the patient cannot communicate and no family members are available? Treat the patient as you see fit, unless you know that the patient wishes otherwise. Question 18. True or false? Withdrawing care and withholding care are the same in the eyes of the law. True. It is important to communicate this principle to family members. The simple fact that a patient is on a respirator does not mean that you cannot turn the respirator off. Question 19. True or false? In terminally ill, non-curable patients, one of the primary goals is to relieve pain. True. Opioids are commonly used, even though they may cause respiratory depression. If in keeping with the patient's wishes, it is more important to make him or her comfortable and pain-free, even if the risk of respiratory depression in this setting. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets.